Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good morning from Mission Control in Houston and the International Space Station Flight Control Room. Late last year, three men, two Russians and one American, were lying on their backs in a capsule on top of a rocket in Kazakhstan's desert steppe. Countdown clocks are ticking backward for the launch of the Soyuz MS-22 spacecraft. They were headed to the International Space Station. The crew is all set to begin its three-hour flight, docking scheduled at 12.11 p.m. Central Time to the Earth-facing side of the Russian segment. After the pre-flight tradition of listening to some music, Music uh, being piped into uh, the spacecraft, basically uh, keeping them relaxed in the final minutes of the countdown that will lead to launch. They were shot through the Earth's atmosphere at nearly 18,000 miles an hour. speed And liftoff. Their journey up went to plan, but coming home might not be as easy. There's three crew members on board the International Space Station, two cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut. They got hit by a micrometeoroid back in December. The ship lost all of its coolant after a direct hit from a microscopic micrometeoroid while docked at the International Space Station. Basically, their lifeboat has a serious enough problem that they can't trust it to bring them home. So three went up, but with their ride home damaged and tensions between Russia and the US ramping up, will all three come back down? This is the story of a meteoroid strike, a rescue mission, and how arguments about a war on Earth are reaching all the way to space. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Sean O'Neill. Today, Russian space rescue. Will everyone make it home? NASA says a millimetre-sized piece of debris represents what they call the highest mission-ending risk to most robotic spacecraft operating in low Earth orbit. That's Jackie Goddard, US correspondent for The Times. She lives in Florida and has been writing about space for more than two decades. 
I'm 200 miles or so south of Kennedy Space Center. That's America's gateway to the stars. I can still actually see rockets launching from my house. In fact, just a few hours ago, I was outside with my space nerd 13-year-old son watching out for one lifting off from Cape Canaveral. And on a good night, you can see the fireball climbing into the uh, into the sky and this incredible jellyfish effect that you get with some rockets pulsating across the sky. So it's quite breathtaking and uh, totally addictive. Sounds amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, tell me about this mini meteoroid strike. So in December last year, December the 14th, and we're 250 miles above Earth's surface, and the International Space Station is up there orbiting the planet, but so too is a lot of space debris. And while the one more often than not manages to avoid the other, it's kind of a game of chance. And on this occasion, a micrometeoroid uh, or a tiny piece of space debris comes hurtling through space. It's around 17,500 miles an hour. That's 10 times faster than if you were firing a bullet from an AK-47 semi-automatic rifle. And that little piece of something punches a hole in a Russian spacecraft, a Soyuz capsule that was docked at the station. So how common is that kind of meteoroid strike? Does that happen very often in space? Debris strikes aren't unheard of. Just for the International Space Station alone, it's had to make more than 30 evasive manoeuvres since 1999. That's a process where it fires up its thrusters and raises or lowers its, its orbit to move out the way of something that's calculated to either be on a collision course or coming too close for comfort. So uh, space is a big place, obviously, but there's a lot of stuff up there to get hit. And increasingly, uh, there's larger amounts of satellites cluttering up low Earth orbit. And there's a lot of meteoroids and human-made debris to do the hitting. So that can be anything from old bits of space rock left over from the formation of the solar system billions of years ago to parts of old rockets and broken satellites and so on. And it is a large problem, around 100 million debris objects in Earth orbit, one millimetre or smaller, and those pieces aren't trackable and traceable. And then approximately 23,000 pieces of debris that are larger than a a sort of tennis ball size. So you're talking anything from a grain of sand to something the size of a bus, and they're all hurtling at anything um, up to 22,000 miles an hour. These are projectiles that pose a very grave danger to anything flying in space. So when did the um, astronauts and the cosmonauts on board the ISS, when when did they first realise they had a problem, Jackie? Yes, well, and let's paint the scene here, December 14th. It was already shaping up to be quite a lively day on the ISS, but for very different reasons, because there were two cosmonauts, Sergei Prokopiev and Dmitry Patelin, who were preparing for a scheduled spacewalk. As we begin our coverage today of U.S. Spacewalk 82, you are looking live inside the equipment lock of the Quest airlock of the International Space Station. So that's venturing out of the airlock into the vacuum of space, drifting about uh, above the Earth. Okay, copy. To perform some routine maintenance on the uh, exterior of the space station. For now, you can turn them off. Inside, their colleague Anna Kikina was set to support them, operating the station's robot arm. And then meanwhile, over on the U.S. side... There were three U.S. astronauts and their Japanese colleague, and they'd been working away on their science and research. So things were all very routine. But before these two cosmonauts got to the point of going out of the airlock 
flight controllers in Russia noticed something off with readings that they were getting from sensors in the cooling system on a Russian Soyuz space capsule that was docked at the space station. This was a capsule that had ferried up two of the cosmonauts and astronaut. They found the pressure had dropped, which indicated a leak. And then sure enough, uh, looking at camera views, they found a stream of particles that was spewing out from the aft end of the Soyuz, a bit like a snowblower streaming out like in a stream of flakes. So the spacewalk was swiftly cancelled. And Roscosmos and NASA, that's the Russian and US space agencies, they immediately conferred. They worked together to get investigatory work underway, assess what this leak was, and decide next steps. This continues over the next day or so. Meanwhile, all on board were said to be in no danger. They carry on with their other activities. But for some of the crew, that Soyuz capsule was due to be their taxi ride home to Earth a few months later, and there's no repair garage, obviously, to, to take it into. Russia's space agency now says the capsule is unsafe, which is bad news for the two Russians and one American who are expecting to ride the Soyuz back to Earth after months in orbit. So over the next few days and weeks, Roscosmos and NASA have some big troubleshooting to do. And what damage did they find specifically when they looked? So the damage was to a coolant loop. And let me just explain what that means. As the International Space Station moves through 16 sunrises and sunsets a day, so imagine that every 90 minutes it's, it's lapping the Earth, temperatures fluctuate according to its um, position relative to the, to the sun. So this Soyuz has internal computers. They can't be left to fry if that thing was actually flying to or from the space station, those computers control that flight. And without them, you're going nowhere or you're going somewhere bad. So you can't afford to have temperatures soaring inside a Soyuz. And that's why this coolant loop was so critical. And am I right that the impact also damaged the skin of the spacecraft? Yes, you don't want to be flying back through Earth's atmosphere with any lack of integrity to the um, skin of the spacecraft or its heat shield. If your ship has no way to provide cooling, you can rapidly get to the point where human beings can no longer function. If you think back to the Columbia space shuttle disaster. NASA lost communication with the space shuttle several minutes ago. There was damage to the leading edge of one of its wings during its takeoff. It appears the shuttle broke up during re-entry and we can tell you that it is several minutes late so when it came back through Earth's atmosphere, hot gases, plasma seeped inside the spacecraft and just broke it apart from within. Tell us a little bit, uh, Jackie, about the three men who were up there. They're all very seasoned space travellers and, of course, astronauts and their Russian equivalent cosmonauts trained very hard. They're pretty hardcore folks. Um, the three involved uh, a NASA astronaut, Frank Rubio. Yeah, copy, Frank. And Nick, uh, from my vantage point, it looks like on this side, all the magnets are uh, aligning and zipping up properly all the way. That's great to hear, Frank. Thanks for the words. He's a, actually a, a physician. He graduated from the U.S. Military Academy. Uh, he's a pilot, flies Black Hawk helicopters. He served combat duty in Bosnia and Afghanistan and Iraq. 
and he served in the U.S. Army's Airborne Special Forces before he was selected for NASA duty in 2017. So pretty tough guy there. His Russian colleagues, Sergei Prokofiev. He is a father of two, also a pilot. He uh, is has been declared by Russia a hero of the Russian Space Federation. That's a, a space medal for his service. And his first flight to space was in 2018. So he's a veteran of space flight. And then with him, Dmitry Patelin. He's 39. He's an engineer. Uh, all of them selected, not just because they've done the training, but they're deemed to be men of character and uh, folks who can tough out any situation and, and remain calm under pressure. Right, Jackie. So these three men are on the International Space Station and their lifeboat is broken down and there's no way back. Let's just roll back, zoom out for a moment. Remind me, what is the ISS? What does it do? So the ISS is this 450-tonne orbiting laboratory whizzing around the Earth once every 90 minutes or so. So imagine that you're looking down at this big blue marble of the Earth 250 miles below, speeding over whole countries and oceans and mountain ranges in, in a matter of minutes. Its dimensions are roughly that of a football pitch. So it's an American football pitch. So it's 365 feet or 109 meters end to end. And something that big can't be launched in one go from Earth. So it's been built in segments set up on rockets and then assembled on orbit like this giant Lego set effectively in space that was assembled over the course of 42 missions since 1998. It's an international collaboration, in fact, the world's largest in terms of science and technology collaborations. So you have 15 nations taking part. That's the, the US and Russia as the main partners, Canada, Japan, and then the various member nations of the European Space Agency. And it's been continuously occupied for over 22 years now. And it's cost $150 billion. There's usually a minimum of three astronauts or cosmonauts or a mix of the two, or up to seven swapping in and out, serving missions between, you know, four months to a year. And then very often you can see it in the night sky. It's powered by one acre of solar panels. So the light reflection off them at dawn or dusk gives it very high visibility. And what, what are the people on board doing? What, what's its purpose? Its purpose is as a research laboratory. There's been well over about 3,000 scientific experiments now because it provides this unique microgravity environment, so weightlessness. So that offers some huge benefits for certain kinds of research, for example, research into bone structure and osteoporosis and processes required for developing vaccines. So much of this work uses microgravity tools, which include growing protein crystals and tissue chips, human tissue chips on which to experiment. And without gravity, proteins can be grown as crystals in space with, with nearly perfect three-dimensional structures, which provide the perfect platform for this testing and research. And then one other thing, aside as well from the sheer educational value and link-ups with schools and inspiring kids to pursue STEM careers, 
There's also a lot of physiological studies going on on the space station to better understand how the human body works in space. This is especially important with NASA now turning its sights on uh, longer-term, long-haul space travel. In the 2030s, it aims to send humans to Mars. The two key partners running the ISS are, are Russia and America. I think they control one segment each. Can you just remind us how that collaboration came about, uh, you know, how the ISS came to be 22 years ago? It was actually a vision of President Ronald Reagan who first directed NASA to initiate construction of a space station. Tonight, I am directing NASA to develop a permanently manned space station and to do it within a decade. He envisaged it as the start of a commercial space economy, which it very much has been. And he had a lovely quote. He said, just as the oceans opened up a new world for clipper ships and Yankee traders, space holds enormous potential for commerce today. We can follow our dreams to distant stars, living and working in space for peaceful economic and scientific gain. NASA will invite other countries to participate so we can strengthen peace build prosperity and expand freedom for all who share our goals. In 1998, construction began. Two years later, there was one astronaut and two cosmonauts. Seven, six, five, four, three, three two, engine one, sequence start. Zero. One, zero, launch commit. We have a liftoff. All engines building up thrust. Moscow is go for docking. Houston is go for docking. It's up to you guys. Have fun. All righty. Sounds good. Palomino Mila, Alexi. Less than five meters distance. Three metro. Three metro. One meter. Contact. There's one astronaut and two cosmonauts opened the doors between the first two segments, Russian and American, and floated in and shook hands. There's multiple different modules, each owned and operated either by NASA and its partners or by Russia. So the US, NASA, supplies the power and the life support systems, and Russia supplies the propulsion capabilities by way of its Progress spacecraft that dock at the station, and then they can fire up their engines to provide periodic boosts to keep it aloft because gravity over time pulls it back in towards the Earth. But since the war in Ukraine... Russia and America aren't the best of friends anymore. How does that impact on the work in the ISS? Well, America and Russia have this very tense relationship and, and the war going on in Ukraine and all kinds of challenges between them. There is this sort of strained friendship on the ISS. They kind of just crack on and do their work. And then there was a curious incident last year whereby a new crew, a Russian crew arrived on the space station and they showed up not in their usual flight suits, but in flight suits made out of the colours of the Ukrainian flag. And it was felt to be a highly political statement. And the excuse given by the crew was, oh no, this was just the material that there was a lot of in the warehouse when we chose what material that our flight suits should be made out of. So that was a very 
curious step beyond the normal realms of staying above the politics. So as politics from Earth seep into space and the tensions are rising, can all these three men make it back safely? That's coming up. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So on the ISS right now, we have seven people and three of them, that's our two Russian cosmonauts and, and one American astronaut, don't have a ride home because their spacecraft is damaged by a meteoroid strike. Jackie, tell me, what's the rescue plan? And does NASA even call it a rescue or are they trying to make it sound less hazardous than that? So NASA wavered between saying it was a rescue mission and saying it was not a rescue mission. Here's the bit where, where maybe rescue is maybe a merited term. Say if there was any kind of an emergency on the space station, any crew carrying spacecraft that is docked there, those are the lifeboats for the crew on board. There are actually seven people on board the space station from two different crews. Suddenly, there's no option for everyone to escape in an emergency. The station's only other lifeboat seats, just four. If they have to scramble and just get off the space station due to an emergency or a pending collision, those are the difference between life and death. But I remember in briefings, the uh, ISS program manager for NASA, Joel Montalbano, told us, absolutely, this is not a rescue mission. He said this is a replacement mission. So what they decided to do was, because they could not risk bringing crew back to Earth in March, as they had planned to do on a broken spacecraft, the Russians sent up a new Soyuz space capsule empty. A new ride back to Earth for Rubio, Prokopiev and Patelin takes aim on the International Space Station. So it was due to fly up with crew anyway. They bumped the crew off, left them back on Earth so that then the, the crew whose spacecraft was damaged can come back down to Earth in a safer vehicle. Because of that switcheroo, they then had to also extend 
the duration of the mission for those three crew, that's two, the two cosmonauts and the one astronaut, leave them on the space station longer. So it involved a lot of, of juggling around. Jackie, I'm reminded of that film with Matt Damon, The Martian, where he gets he gets left behind on the red planet. Is there still a worry that the American astronaut might be stranded up there? There have been rows about this kind of thing in the past, haven't there? When Russia first invaded Crimea in 2014 and the Americans retaliated with sanctions, that didn't go down well, did it? So in 2014, Dmitry Rogozin, the then head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, did start making threats. U.S. and Russian diplomacy takes another dive. Dmitry Rogozin proposes NASA should find a more bouncy way into space. He suggested that NASA could bring their astronauts to the ISS using a trampoline, meaning, you know, don't count on us and our Russian spacecraft anymore. Rogozin is in charge of the Russian space program, and that sour tweet came after the U.S. enforced sanctions and froze Rogozin's operational accounts. Of course, relations continued. Of course, Russia kept on shuttling American astronauts to the space station. This was mostly the, the sort of bombastic, somewhat eccentric and erratic head of Roscosmos ramping up the tension there. And then six years later, of course, then Elon Musk comes along with his SpaceX Crew Dragon commercial space capsule, which NASA contracted with, and that reduced NASA's reliance on Russia for these taxi services. And there was a, a very fun moment where Elon Musk taunted Dmitry Rogozin over at uh, the Russian Space Agency by saying, well, hey. The trampoline is working. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 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 it's the inside joke. I know what In, inside about. joke, yeah. <laughs> Meaning we can get our own astronauts to space now and we're re no longer reliant on you. So the Russians didn't uh, didn't like that, though, did they? They they mocked up a, a video of two Russian cosmonauts waving bye bye to to the American astronaut, leaving him stuck on the ISS as they flew back to Earth. They did, and in fact, this caused some alarm and annoyance. Dangerous standoff in space. Russia is making new threats regarding the safety of an American astronaut on the International Space Station in response to crippling U.S. sanctions. The Russian state news agency published a video that it claimed was made by Roscosmos, meaning Rogozin, depicting Russian cosmonauts undocking their segment of the space station and waving goodbye to an American colleague, Mark van der Heij, who they had actually been due to transport home on a Russian Soyuz. He's supposed to return home on a Russian ship in just three weeks. There was some very hasty communications between Russia and America over what was going on. And NASA made an announcement insisting that the Soyuz would return as scheduled, carrying their NASA astronaut along with the cosmonauts. And that did indeed happen. There's been a lot of saber rattling, a lot of pretty vulgar language. Um, at one point as well, Rogozin uh, threatened to crash the ISS into the U.S., he tweeted in Russian, if you block cooperation with us, who will save the ISS from an uncontrolled deorbit and fall into the United States or Europe? He said that NASA could soar into space on your broomsticks. He called an American astronaut and a former station commander a moron. So given all this aggro, where is Dmitry Rogozin now? Is he still in charge of Roscosmos? Is he actually still supervising and overseeing this whole rescue effort? Mr. Rogozin was removed from his post 
in uh, summer last year. This is definitely not a sad story for the space industry. The ever-controversial head of the Russian space program, Dmitry Rogozin, is being replaced by Deputy Prime Minister Yuri Borisov. And those tensions and, and the ratcheting up of, of the, the kind of war of words between them has calmed down. Mr. Rogozin, he sounds like quite an eccentric, bombastic character. Um, is his removal a signal that collaboration continues and is still valued by both parties? It is. Who knows what kind of conversations might have transpired between leaderships in the US and Russia over trying to tamp down the rhetoric that was coming out of Mr. Rogozin. He was certainly moved aside unceremoniously. And I think it would be fair to say that maybe Mr. Rogozin got too much even for the Russians. So... That's a sign, a good sign for Frank Rubio, isn't it? You know, it suggests the Russians are quite happy to bring the the American astronaut back down to Earth. Yes, Rubio is uh, is coming back to Earth. Contracts exist between NASA and Roscosmos for mutually helping each other out with ferrying astronauts and cosmonauts to and from the space station. There's no sign that those contracts are being dishonoured and there's no suggestion from either side that, uh, that Rubio and his, uh, his lift home are at risk. So let's zoom out again, if I may, and, and look at the big picture. What's the future of the, the ISS? Is its future under threat because of tensions between Russia and the US? Or or is it simply, as you mentioned, that the, the development of the private sector space travel means that collaboration is no longer necessary? Well, part of the story that has been built around the space station at the Russian end has been that Russia doesn't like the sanctions imposed on it by, by the US in relation to the Ukraine war when things became spiky. Russia began making noises about pulling out of the International Space Station partnership. Now, the space station had been planned to continue to 2030. And Russia has not committed to staying as part of the partnership till 2030. It has made noises about pulling out after 2024. But that could be any time between 2024 and 2030. The long-term plan for it in 2030 is that it will be safely deorbited, so it will be tugged back in towards Earth's atmosphere and burn up in the atmosphere, and then parts that don't burn up would fall into a, a sort of rocket graveyard in the Pacific Ocean. Here's the thing. NASA is a good partner on the space station in that Russia doesn't have any others. It doesn't have anywhere else to go. Russia doesn't really have the money and resources to pour into a new partnership. It certainly can't afford to build itself a new space station. Its own government space industry is is somewhat in disarray and crumbling. And really, it might be a case that they actually don't have a choice but to stay in this ISS partnership. So talking to other astronauts, they say hopefully cool heads will prevail And while the partnership is somewhat in crisis, um, they do, when it really comes down to it, need each other. Do we know 
how the astronauts on the ISS, do we get any clue as to how they respond to all this drama and how they respond to the situation in Ukraine? Any astronaut will tell you how from space you don't see borders and countries and and the, the hostilities that we are constantly challenged by here on Earth. Up on the space station, it's kind of this microcosm of how everybody wishes it might be. The astronauts and cosmonauts all get along. They invite each other to, to each other's segments for dinner. Like like, did anybody eat the uh, skin on these? Ah, oh, nice. Ketchup. The onion skin? Anybody? You want the onion It'll skin? help the burger stick. Oh. The people got pizza. Ostry. Oh, kind of ostry. What's your ostry? Meat. They've learned each other's languages they have to in order to be up there. They are the best of friends, many of them. I spoke as well to to a former U.S. commander of the space station, and he he told me, look, the Russians didn't try and tell me, well, Putin's great, rah, rah. And I didn't say, well, actually, Putin sucks. We acknowledged it was just, it was a thing, but we handled it very professionally. And right now up there, I think they're doing the same. But he talked as well about, you know, being up there in 2014 uh, and watching Russian bombs going on off in uh, eastern Ukraine from space and the red flashes of bombs. So that reality of what's going on down below, no matter what you're trying to maintain in terms of friendliness up above, uh, are two very different things. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Sean O'Neill, and my guest, Jackie Goddard, US correspondent for The Times. You can find all of Jackie's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, please send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.